morning. Go ahead and grab a seat and make yourself comfortable. Am I on? I'm good? I'm on? Okay. Yeah. Hey, my name is Luke. I haven't met some of you yet. It's good to have you here. Hope to get to meet you after this. And I agree with Charlie. It is a privilege to have you here because gone are the days of just rolling out of bed and showing up to a, a church service, right? All the precautions, all of the, it, it feels a little bit more uphill. Um, so thank you for going through all of the trouble of getting your family ready or you getting ready and going through all the precautions, being here with us as a gather people. It's good to have you here. Um, and we are going to do things a little bit differently after the service, just as Charlie said, and we'll walk you through it whenever we get to that point. But listen, if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Ecclesiastes. You might have to hunt for it, and no one will judge you if you look at the table of contents. Just flip to the table of contents and find it. We are starting a new book today, and I'll be up front with you. It's a very strange one, okay? It's a very odd book, but we are in odd, strange times, so it's going to be okay. We're going to reach back in time about 3,000 years, and we are going to draw a lot of wisdom out of Ecclesiastes. We're going to see the person of Christ with more intense clarity through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this book is also going to show us how to contend with a very strange 2020. Um, I want you guys to know that when I pray for you individually and as a church, I pray for a few key things. One being that your uh, gospel fascination grow over time. That the gospel story and the hero of our gospel story in Christ is not somebody that becomes old. Or the story is not something that becomes stale or covered with dust over time. But your understanding of the gospel, your joy in the gospel grows in depth and in width. Your scope of the gospel intensifies year after year after year. That's one thing I pray for. Another is that you are equipped to deal with hard seasons. That you're equipped to deal with suffering, with a sense of purpose and joy and meaning. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to help us in the purpose department, in the meaning department. It's going to help us distinguish between what is meaningful in this world and what is meaningless in this world. And this is difficult for us to do. It's very difficult for your neighbors to do, for those in the world. Herman Melville I don't know if this man was a Christian or not. He was definitely religious. He wrote Moby Dick. He calls Ecclesiastes the truest of all of Solomon's work and the truest book in the Bible. He says it is fine hammered steel of woe. All is vanity, he says in the work Moby Dick. Friends, listen, if you don't know how to deal with Ecclesiastes, if you don't know how to interact with it, it's going to depress you. It's going to discourage you really quick right off the bat. The very first few times I read this as a young Christian, and what I really mean is reading the first two chapters as a Christian and deciding I wasn't going to read anymore. The very first two or three times I did that, I asked myself the question, why is this in the Bible? Then I began asking others around me the same question, why exactly is this in the Bible? It's depressing. It's sad. It's like we had a party going and somebody let Debbie down in the room. Now the whole mood is down and I don't even know what to do with this stuff. Am I supposed to be sad? Don't know how to read it. But you need to know it's out of a deep respect for himself, a deep sense of his own glory and honor that he has given us this book. It's also out of a deep love for you that he has given you this book. Christ is excited about this book being in your Bible. And of all the years I've pastored in different roles in different places through different seasons, I can't think of a better time to go through this book 
as a church than right now with you. Can't. It's perfect for us. Because our human problem is on full display before everybody. We, you and me, we carefully build our lives. We put our blood, sweat, and our tears into all of our endeavors, but we always wonder if it will come to anything. Don't we? Does it mean anything? Does it make any difference? Is our work and our toil, is it going to last? Is it going to be remembered? Are you going to be remembered? The writer of Ecclesiastes says, don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. We somewhat suspect this, though, don't we? I mean, if we're just going to be honest with time and with death kind of peering over our shoulders and following us, we spend a lifetime building these sandcastles in the face of a storm, and then every once in a while, life comes along and kicks one of our sandcastles over just to remind us that our best attempts at this world are going to fail. But this book fits in with what scholars have called wisdom literature. It feels like bummer literature, but there's no such thing. Wisdom literature. Also in that, Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Psalm of Psalm, right? This would be the fifth in the wisdom literature. Now, but it's different. It's wisdom, but it's wisdom in a different dialect. For instance, Proverbs, I mean, the the big mega theme of it is if you walk uprightly, if you walk with character, if you watch your mouth, if you don't get drunk, if you do right things, then everything will probably work out well for you. It's not a promise, it's just a truism. Likely you'll be okay. But this is a glitch in the matrix. Ecclesiastes, because he comes along and says, you can be wise and still lose it all. You could be good and still die young. You could do all the stuff you're supposed to be doing and still find ruin. You can plan and work and save and just watch it go up in smoke. It's like anti-Proverbs, but it's still wisdom, still wisdom, and it's a tool and a gift that God has given you and me for uncertain times, just like the ones we find ourselves in today. And I think one of the most important aspects of this book of Ecclesiastes is it forces us to have hard conversations with ourselves, and we hate doing this. We hate looking at reality. We hate looking too deeply at reality. This is what Andrew Sullivan says. He writes for New York Magazine. He says, our modern world tries extremely hard to protect us from the sort of existential moments. Netflix, air conditioning, sex apps, Alexa, Kale, Pilates, Spotify, Twitter, they're all designed to create a world in which we rarely get a second to confront ultimate meaning. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's it's not a COVID cough. I got something in my throat. We don't have to confront it until a tragedy occurs. A death happens or a diagnosis strikes. See, humans don't do reality very well. We don't. But then again, in this century, we don't have to. We can escape reality anytime we want. But, but eventually, as Solomon says, we have to approach it because a tragedy occurs. And in our case, a virus came along and kicked over our sand castles. And we've had to come face to face with what we would call ultimate meaning. What really matters with our fragility, with our temporary nature, will we last? For how long? Here's my hope. My hope is that you gain the tools and the equipment necessary to greet reality and to carry the gospel closely. So we're going to jump into this. I think it's going to be a blessing for all of us. You'll be glad that we walk through this book. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. This is Ecclesiastes, the word of the Lord for you and for me. Starts off, and we're just going to walk through it. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Okay, the preacher right here, that word comes from the same word that gives us Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes just means a preacher that gathers or someone that collects, someone that assembles. It could be Solomon here. That's probably what you grew up hearing. Scholars are actually split pretty much 50-50 on whether this is really Solomon or not. I lead a little bit towards Solomon. Most people don't care. If you really care, I've got a long list of books full of smart people that spill a lot of ink talking about why it is or is not Solomon. If you don't agree, we could still be friends. Because here's the key. If it was not Solomon, it was someone writing from a privileged piece of royalty. Ultimate power, ultimate wealth, ultimate opportunity belong to this author, this preacher. Here's the thing. It's someone not us. Someone not like us. That's what we are meant to get from this. It's important. Because what we do is we project ourselves onto other people and we say to ourselves, if I had what that person had, then I would have meaning in my life. I would have purpose in my life. I would have joy in my life. If I had the money that person had, if I had the genetics this person had, if I had the family and the upbringing over here, if I had the opportunity over there, if I had whatever it is, fill in the blank, if I was taller, if I had a girlfriend, if I had a different spouse, whatever it is, we say if I had this, life would be more meaningful. And the preacher comes along and spoils this because he had everything. Wealth, power, Opportunity, meaning no doors shut in his face. He had anything he wanted. He had ultimate wisdom. He speaks from a very privileged place of royalty. Some say that Solomon wrote the Song of Songs when he was a young man. He wrote Proverbs when he was in his middle years. But this book, this is what he reflects through in his latter years. Maybe. Maybe. Because he's caring in this book, but he's awfully jaded. He's a, he's a jaded preacher. He's looking for meaning. He's definitely reflecting. He gets to the end of his life, and he's lamenting. And we don't want to hear this reflection, by the way. We're going to call that person the author. The author is going to form brackets on this work. We're going to find this person again at the very end of this letter. But what I want you to catch is the theme, which is painted on very thick right there in the first two verses all is vanity. It's going to be repeated almost 40 more times in a short little book. All is vanity. Vanity is not a central little station that you put your makeup on at, right? It's also not pride. When we use the word vanity, we usually think in terms of pride, and that's not untrue, but that's not what this means. This comes from an old Hebrew word, and you know I don't like to talk in Hebrew, hevel, H-E-V-E-L. Hevel is a strange word, which basically means it's there, but not really there. It's something, but it's also nothing. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's a fog. It's a smoke. It's absurd. It's futile. All of those words poured into a blender and then coming on out as the word hevel. All things are hevel. And it's said over and over again because the English poetry you and I grew up with in high school that we pretended to like, that worked on repeated sounds, right? That's how we do it in English. But, but back in Hebrew, it was reported or repeated words and ideas. And here, the repeated idea we're going to find over and over again is all is hevel. Let's jump back into verse 3. 
read a few more verses. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Here's the big question of life for all of us. What is at the end of me doing all of this? I've been asking myself this a lot the last few weeks as I've been studying this book. What is at the end of all of this work? Why? What's at the end of all of this toil? And what the, what the preacher wants you to see here is a picture of weariness, of being fatigued, Even nature is caught in this cul-de-sac on a broken carousel doing the same things unoriginally that it did the day before over and over and over again. Wind is recycled. Water isn't the same. Even the sun is on the same broken orbit it's been on all the time. Nothing is new under the sun. When you're standing in your driveway or your lawn and the wind blows the leaves around you or when you're in the river and the water just finds a way to get around you, yeah, that's not new. It's that, that water and that wind has been there since the beginning of time. It's not new. All of nature is remixed. Creation is stuck on this treadmill, exhausted. It gets off and it's right back where it started. This is a picture for you because as a piece of creation, we're the same. That's why this is in here. An unsatisfying life where we look around and we say, what is at the end of all of this? We too exhausting ourselves unoriginally. We labor and we toil until it all goes black. Hey, are we encouraged yet? Glad you came. Just wait, it gets better. Look at verse 9 with me. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Interesting passage because now it's saying not only is the cosmos wearied by circular repetition, so are our ideas. Our best ideas are fatigued and weary. There's nothing new under the sun. And that doesn't mean that we don't make new things, by the way, right? I mean, my cell phone is far better than the one I had five years ago, far better than the one I got in 2007 when they were a really big deal for the first time. It's far better. We invent new things, but those new things don't do anything new for us. I mean, your iPhone, if you have the iPhone 11, it's not doing anything for you new that, it, that my parents had available to them when they had a landline. Think about that for a moment. We've always been communicating. We've always been connecting with each other. We've always been organizing our calendar. Those iPhones, they came from Palm Pilots back in the day. Anyone in here have a Palm Pilot? I had one. Wow, I was so excited about that thing. That was awesome. That was the future. Flip phones, before that, pagers, bag phones. Anyone know anyone had a bag phone in their car before? Go back to landlines before that. 
letters and postcards before that. We've always been communicating. We just do it differently now. Why? Because there's nothing new about us. Nothing new. If you go back and look at the 1982 World's Fair that happened not too far from here, you'll find three pieces of technology that were unveiled for the very first time. One, touch screens, believe it or not, here, 1982. Second, pay at the pump. Whenever you get gas and you don't have to go inside anymore, that's, that you could thank the World's Fair in 1982 for that. Third, Cherry Coke. Cherry Coke, right? But, I mean, you had millions of people walking around World's Fair Park, up and down Gay Street, saying, can you believe this? Can you believe this? So excited about it, and we still do it. We still say it, don't we? Can you believe this? This new thing, this new flavor, this new idea, and yet nothing is new. We make new trinkets and new flavors and new toys, but we're the exact same people doing the exact same thing. We work, we fix, we break, we move on, we get married, we don't get married, we mourn, we celebrate. We're the same people. Nothing is significant is what he is saying. Listen, not even the stories we tell are significant. Basically, any, any big blockbuster you go out and pay money to see, it's the same story. It's the hero's journey or the hero's story. You have a hero. Sometimes they're broken and failed because they want you to resonate with the person, right? Sometimes they're, they're like bigger, than, they're bigger than, than, than the world. They're like perfect, and they want you to aspire to that. But the hero's the hero until the villain gets in the way or something villainous. At what point, usually deep in the movie, that there is something that's going to stretch that hero beyond what they feel like they can accomplish, and then the end is always going to be better than the beginning of the movie. It's, gosh, it's like every, it's Star Wars, and it's the Karate Kid. It's every Western, and it's every Marvel movie. We can't even tell stories that are significant and new. We just dress them up differently. Why? Because there's nothing new under the sun, the preacher says. The preacher would also like for you to know at this point in time that nothing you do will be remembered. I mean, if you're a big league world changer, like you're on the front page for years, probably the most you can hope for is that your last name is vaguely remembered in some advanced trivial pursuit question 50 years from now. It's probably the most you can really hope for. I was with a bunch of friends at a restaurant a week ago, and there was a bar attached to it that was doing trivia night. Have you ever been in those situations? You're kind of, you're, you're carrying on a conversation, but you're also listening for the questions at the same time. You're trying to do both. And I remember thinking, man, there's, I think I know the answer to that question. It's a person's name. Who is it? Who is it? And I'm spinning through this Rolodex of all my damaged brain cells from flag football concussions and staying up too light and video games and everything. I couldn't, I, and, and it hit me. I think it's Andrews. I think it's Andrews. And here's the thing. That person was a huge deal back in the day. I could, barely remember, I could barely remember their name. They were a huge, big deal. How about you? Who was your great-great-grandpa? That wasn't that long ago. What was his name? Hey, better yet, what did he spend 60 hours a week doing? What kind of a guy was he? Was he funny? Did he tell fart jokes? Was he serious? Was he morose? Did he have a sense of humor? Was he a jerk? What kind of guy was he? We don't know. You don't know. And just like that, your great-great-grandkids, they might have a faint memory of stories that were told about you, but that's where it's probably going to end. That's probably where it's going to end. I have to tell you, this part is what drives me nuts the most because I want to leave a dent in this world so bad. 
I do. I want to make a difference. Not just today. I want to make a difference that rolls and accrues until Christ comes back. I've always wanted this. I hate the idea of being blended into this anonymous noise of just commonality. I hate the idea of it. I always tell myself, I've got plans. I'm going to be different. The preacher here says, don't count on it. Don't count on it. No one's going to remember you, Luke. Get used to anonymity. Some of you are twisting over a truth like that, thinking, not me. I've got plans. I I hear you. I do too. Go tell it to the mountains and the moon. They've heard them. (laughs) They've heard your plans from a million people before you. Tell them your testimony of what you're going to do. They'll tell you the testimony that they've experienced of being fatigued and weary and spinning in circles. This is tough. This is tough. Good news in it all is whatever you're losing sleep over today, it's going to be forgotten one day. <laughs> this house you're working so hard to pay down, eventually they're going to stretch some, some caution tape across the front door and they're going to bulldoze it down. The laptop you just pulled off the shelf at Best Buy, as soon as you walked out the door, they put another one up on the shelf just to replace it. Yours started becoming obsolete from that moment on, right? The car you can't wait to get, it's going to be in a scrapyard one day waiting to have its water pump pulled out or its spare tire or something like that. All is hevel. Are you super glad you came? How are we doing? We good? (laughs) Again, you suspected this. You knew this. He's just making you confront it. That's what Ecclesiastes does better than any book. He makes you confront it to look it squarely in the eye and not escape. Is this all there is? Why am I doing this? Why? Is there anything new at the end of this? Maybe you saw the movie Groundhog Day. It's back in the early 90s, 1993. Bill Murray, he's the main character. The idea is he gets stuck in this time loop where every day was February 2nd. That movie's been ripped off a few times and redressed. Why? Because nothing new under the sun, right? But, I mean, isn't that how it feels? The reason they keep making movies like that is because that's the life we live. We get up at the same time every day. We put on one of nine outfits that we like still out of our closet. We get in the car, usually around the same time, take the same way to work. We get out, same cup that we use for coffee. We sit down in the same desk, same cubicle, same office, and we deal with the same problems. Maybe they have different names. We go to the same places for lunch. When we're done, we drive the same way home, and we get home. We have the same meal with our family or one or nine variations of the same meal with our family, right, or leftovers from another meal that we always have. And then we sit down and we watch the same thing on Netflix, have the same conversation, go to bed at the same time, rinse, repeat, do it all again the same day. It's always Tuesday, is it not? And you knew this. We live in a loop. This is what Bill Murray says in the movie. He says, it's the same thing every day. Clean up your room, stand up straight, pick up your feet, take it like a man, be nice to your sister, don't mix beer and wine ever. Oh yeah, don't drive on the railroad tracks. (laughs) That's what he walks away with because it's the same old, same old. And what we do is we like to pretend that our life is not stuck. And how we do this, we attach ourselves to new things, new people, new places, and new experiences. Because if we can attach ourselves to something new that is not repeating, we are convincing ourselves that we are significant, will last forever, and be known here forever with all of our endeavors working forever. It's what we do. New trip, new app, new house, new spouse. We need something to convince us we're not stuck. This is why advertising works, by the way. It convinces you what you've always been using, 
is that which has also had you in a rut. Your problem is that you don't have something new. What you need is a new toothpaste, right? Or what you need is a new app or a new church or a new husband or a new wife. You need something new. The problem is that you have old. That's why advertising works. We love the thought of escaping weariness. Verse 12, let's jump in. And he says, I... The preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, which, by the way, inside joke, that's just his dad, right? He's just talking about his dad, David. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." This is what we catch here. Solomon is using all of his faculties to experience life in every different direction. And that's what we'll we'll hit as we move through this book. He's saying with all the money and all of the wisdom and all of the opportunities and all of the time, he's coming to the conclusion that all is hevel. All is meaningless. It's there. It's not really there. It's something and it's nothing. It's futile. It's absurd. As Ernest Hemingway says, it's a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Again, why is this in the Bible? Why do we need this book? Why? Here's the answer. To bring you and me close to Christ. To pull us close to Jesus where meaning and purpose is found. Ecclesiastes brings us to the very end of ourselves, life under this sun. And brings us even further to find Christ. Life under the sun is just a life trying to squeeze satisfaction from this world to the best of our abilities. And the preacher says that's absurd. It's futile. With Christ, all is not meaningless. With Christ, everything has meaning. See, the the theme of this book is not really nothing has meaning. The, The theme of this book is in Christ Everything has meaning to it. But in in order for this life to have meaning, there's got to be more to this life than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. There's got to be something beyond it, something that we trust in, something that we have faith in. Listen, your work, your toil, your struggle has meaning if you're in Christ because Christ worked and toiled and struggled to bring you new life and a purpose in that life. Now... Your work and your toil, even on the boring days, even on the days you wish had never started and wish would just get over with, even those have meaning baked into them, firmly planted in them. If life under this flaming ball of gas we call the sun as we waltz around on this spinning rock we call the earth, if this is all we have, if this is just our life under the sun, yeah, pretty depressing, not really going to read the book, pretty discouraging. But that's not all we have, is it? We have Christ. With Jesus, all is not meaningless. 
all is not futile. That means that there is purpose in your labor, the leftovers you eat, the lawn care, the laundry, the basic things that you do when you pay the bills, when you drive home the same way you've driven, there's meaning cooked into every single second. Because even the predictable things that you do, even the things that feel vacuous, like there's no, no fortitude to them, those are moments where you enjoy what Christ has ultimately done for you, and then you glorify him in the fact that you enjoy him, even in the most boring of moments. This is what God intends for those of us that are buried in him. He says this in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's why he came. You see, Christ in the gospel removes the futility that we are so dying to have removed. He removes it for us. Everything that we long for in the meaning and purpose departments, everything that we want in significance, that's answered in the gospel story. It's answered in a bloody cross and an empty tomb. I mean, the gospel story itself is a story of God entering our futile absurdity. Why? Why? To, to pay the penalty for our sins, but also to rescue us away from a meaningless life. He found us trying to build our sandcastles in the face of a storm. That's how he found me. He found us attaching our happiness to trinkets and toys and experiences. He found us trying to leave a mark on this planet for our own glory. That's how he finds us. He finds us looking for satisfaction and coming up wildly short. That's how he finds us. And he saves us from our sin predominantly, and he does that for his Father's glory. But he also saves us from a life of futility. In meaninglessness of hevel. He rescues us from hevel. Here's an example. You can turn there if you're fast. We'll splash it on the screen if you're not. John 4, some of the earlier works of Christ. And in verse 13, we pick up the end of a short conversation he has with a Samaritan woman that's pulling water out of a well, but she's doing so at a time of the day where she's not having to go with all the other women. Why? Because she's carrying a lot of shame. Right? She's had a lot of husbands. And people whispered about her. She had a reputation, so she's not going to waltz out there when all the other proper people were out there. Christ comes along, introduces himself. They have a little talk. She's asking him some questions. Why are you talking to me? They talk about water. But then it turns. There's a pivot in the conversation. And in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman was caught on this cul-de-sac, this carousel of shame and routine and futility. This woman knew that this hunt for satisfaction was missing by a country mile. New men were not making her feel new. New relationships were not making her feel like she was not in that rut. All it did was add more shame. You know, you had to know when she was walking with pails of water to this well, she was asking herself, what is at the end of me doing all of this? What's waiting for me? Does any of this even matter? 
More Tuesdays of getting water, stuck in February 2nd, hearing whispers, finding another man. All of it, repeating, remixing, just like the sun, just like the wind. Why? Why? For what reason? Sure, this woman was saved from her sin to glorify God and for her good, but she was also saved from February 2nd, where her best attempts would come up like mist and vapor. You see, Christ loves the book of Ecclesiastes, and he never even quotes from it. You won't find him quoting from it in the New Testament, and he loves it. It's relegated to a slot between books that we read a little bit more often than this one, but I think Jesus loves this book for it to be a tool and a resource and an encouragement for you in the uncertainties of life that force us to have hard, hard looks at what's really going on and hard conversations with ourselves. And I think we can find Christ in this book as much as we can find him in any book. Any book. Because when the storms of life slam into your sandcastles, you will have to ask yourself the singular question, will I let this carry me to Christ, the Jesus of the gospel, or will I keep doubling down and placing my trust in this world? What will I do? Will I keep trying to fill in the blank that will bring me meaning and purpose, or I will let this sadness and this futility carry me to the one who has meaning? See, the world sees life under the sun, and the world knows that it's vapor. People who don't even believe in Jesus know that life under the sun is meaningless, right? Whether it's Melville or Hemingway or Mick Jagger singing, I can't get any satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. The world knows that all is hevel, but it can't do anything about it. Can't do a thing about it. Can sing a bunch of songs about it, can write a bunch of stories about it, but upon its deepest re reflections, all it finds is what Millfield called the, the, the hammered steel of woe. But for the Christ follower, we take our lives of hevel to Jesus. And Christ reminds you and me, this is not your home. There's more to this than what you can see. There's more to this than what you can touch. All is not meaningless. Everything has meaning. Every heartbeat, every day at work, every meal of leftovers, every chore, time will not have the final say over your life. Not even death will have the final say over your life. Friends, listen, if you're a Christian, ask yourself as we worship the rest of this, this, this morning, what are you doing with this reflection that nothing you do is going to last here? Nothing you do is really going to be remembered for very long. Nothing you do is going to bring you ultimate significance. What are you doing with that realization? Are you just getting sad and depressed? If you find yourself just getting sad and depressed and discouraged and overwhelmed, it's because there's a piece of you that doesn't believe that God is sovereign and in control and imbues everything with meaning and purpose. Where is it leading you? If it's making you exhausted, and if you live an exhausted life, you're trying to fill in a blank. But for the Christian, the blank is filled. Christ fills the blank, and therefore we have meaning. Not we fill the blank and it will give us meaning. And friends, listen, if you're a skeptic here, maybe you're searching, maybe you're a soft skeptic, you're warm to the idea of God, you're not sure about Christ. If you combined all the wealth of Jeff Bezos, 
and the 10 people trying to chase him down. <laughs> if you took all the wisdom from the, the best minds of every TED Talk that was ever given, if you took every opportunity from a royal member of whatever family, of whatever nation, if you took all of the best of the best of the best of the best and you put it on your shoulders, you think you could outrun this? This hevel? Our rider had it all. Listen to him. Listen to him. But then again, I think you already know this. I think you already know this. And rather than just being nihilistic and fatalistic about it, Christ answers this gaping need that we have. Join the woman by the well. Join the woman by the well where life springs from a living water and our cravings stop. Our cravings stop. So listen, I'm about to pray for you, but before I do, we're going to do something a little differently. Charlie alluded to this before the service started. Because we're not going to be singing like we normally do, we're going to try something a little bit different. And when there is songs at the back end, we're going to ask that you wear your mask. So the very last part of this will be a song or two, and we're just going to ask that you wear a mask while you sing. Some of you are going to be uncomfortable with that, and I understand. And if you need to leak out the back door, no one's going to judge you. We're not writing your name down or anything like that. I get it. I don't like singing in a mask either. If you want to just stand there and be a part of it, that's totally fine as well. That'll be at the end. Before that, Randy's going to come up and he's going to lead us through a moment. But before we even have Randy lead us through a, a prayer moment, I'd like to lead you through communion, right? Um, so I think we have those available. If you didn't grab one of these, we have these little rip and sip cups, right? Because we're not dipping bread and juice, obviously. So we have these things that we're going to use today. Listen, if you're a Christian, I just encourage you to take one of these from one of our pastors here. And we're going to take it together corporately. Again, we don't really do this. What we usually do is have you take it on your own with your family during the worship segment with all the lights off. Because in all honesty, I prefer husbands and dads leading their family through communion or community groups getting together and doing it. Today we're going to do it a little bit differently because we're trying to be agile and nimble with all the precautions that are, that are ours to deal with right now. So as they hand these out... We'll take it together. We'll all futz through this tiny little wrapping thing together so no one feels stupid. How about that? But communion is a beautiful piece of our liturgy because it's to be taken in remembrance of what God has done for us. I mean, what we have here is really just the wafer and some juice, but it's more than this to us as a people. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. The bread shows us that our absurdity doesn't just try to build our own towers of Babel and be our own heroes and our own gods. Our absurdity and our futility also tears down what is beautiful and noble and gracious, as we did with Christ. As we did with Christ. The torn flesh of Jesus shows us the depth of our madness and the depth of God's love for us at the same time. And so when Jesus says, take this in remembrance of him, that's what he means. So let's do that together. You're going to want to pull back. I'll give you a play-by-play. -play. You're going to want to pull back on the clear part of the plastic, and out comes the little wafer. So I'm going to lead you through this, and we're going to pray together. Father, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for the fact that you came to a people that were full of hevel, chasing hevel. We were mad, absurd, preposterous people. And you brought yourself to bear upon us for your glory and for our good. So when we take this bread, we do it in remembrance of your great passion for us. So go ahead and take the bread.
and then the blood. Our vanity, our pride yelled and demanded for the blood of Jesus to be spilled. And when we did this, it satisfied for a singular second our anger and our fury at Christ, but it also satisfied God's justice because the last priest and the last sacrifice did something beautiful to trade his righteousness for ours, and that was done by royal blood being spilt, so royal blood courses through the veins of his children. So, Father, we take this juice in remembrance of you, in remembrance of what you've done for us on the cross. So go ahead and take the juice. And so, Father, before we even bump into the next part of the service, where we worship you all the same, just worship you differently. Father, I pray for those in here who walked in this room with a sense of emptiness. Why does this matter? Why why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm so tired of walking in circles. I'm so tired of the cul-de-sac of routine, and I just can't see anything good coming of it. I can't see anything new. Nothing I do matters. Father, I pray that you administer to that heart here today, Lord. And and to even reinforce it, that the fact that life under the sun alone, that's true, it's never going to matter. There is no end to the toil. We just work, we die, and that's it. But Father, you offer us something in the gospel that is a titanic promise. That when you rescue us, you rescue us not just from the absurdity and the sin and the slavery of this world, but you rescue us into a place where there will be a day where we look around and nothing will be meaningless. Everything will be meaningful and full of purpose. We'll see in color that we've never seen before. We'll hear sounds that we've never heard before. And every, every moment will be seen for the meaning that it has in it. And we'll experience that forever and ever and ever and ever. But Father, right now we have Tuesday. We have February 2nd. And so many of us feel like we're on a treadmill, a loop. Lord, that you administer to our hearts today and show us how beautiful you are for us even in our most boring of moments. And that you administer to our lives and show us how glorious you are so we can abandon the desire to build our glory in this place. And Father, I pray for those in here who are searching They know. They might not love you, but they came in knowing that everything is hevel. They knew everything was vanity because they've tried to do everything under the sun. Father, that you would rescue them. That you would take their heart of stone out and replace it with a heart of flesh that feels and responds. Lord, that you would rescue and grow your church today, even in this place. That today people would be provoked to respond, call you Christ, make you their hero and live as a disciple. So, Father, we love you, and we're very thankful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And Randy's going to lead us here.